You may be seated. My apologies, I should have been up here before then, I guess, to tell you you can be seated. It's good to be with you all. My name is Kyle Fitzgerald, and I bring with uh, myself greetings from Bethany Baptist Church in Stockton, California. And we're thankful for the Lord's work here in Roseville and his faithfulness to you as a congregation and for the prospering of the gospel in this region. And we thank you, I thank you for the opportunity to labor in God's word with you this morning. And with that, I would invite and encourage all of us to turn in your copy of God's word to the gospel of John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, this morning I want us to focus our attention on verses 17 through 21, and we will begin reading in verse 16. John 3, beginning in verse 16 and reading through verse 21. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but please uh, feel free to follow along in whatever translation of God's word you have in front of you. Let us hear together the word of God. John 3, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us unite our hearts and pray as we come to the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege and the blessing of possessing your word. For it is in your word that has the words of eternal life. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the darkness, that you have not left us to ourselves, but by your grace you have revealed your word to us, not only externally but internally by your spirit in our hearts causing us to bow our knee and to kiss the sun, causing us to see the glories of Christ, the depths of our sin, and our great need of his mercy and compassion. Father, we pray that as we've gathered to hear your word, that you would send your spirit, that he would teach and instruct us. We pray that we would be taught of your word, that our minds would be instructed, but also more than that, that our hearts would be transformed, that our wills would be transformed, 
We pray, Father, that we would be not only the hearers of your word, but also the doers, that we would be those who respond appropriately to it. Father, we pray this morning for any who are here who are not converted and who don't know Christ, who are still lovers of darkness, whose lives are still definitively marked as those who love evil and who hate the light. Father, we pray this morning be merciful to them. Open their hearts as you have opened ours. Open their deaf ears and their blind eyes. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit who blows like the wind, sovereignly and with power, and that he would convert the sinner's soul, that he would bring that which is dead to new spiritual life. Father, we pray that you'd bless your people. Build your church this morning, we ask. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, what I'd like to do this morning in terms of an outline or approach to the text is how I usually preach at Bethany. I want to consider this text in three movements, if you will. And I want to begin with the exposition of the text. That is, what is God saying to us? And then secondly, I want us to move into doctrines deduced from the, test, uh, from the text. That is, how are we instructed doctrinally from what God says here? And then lastly, we will turn to application of the text. And so that's how we will uh, approach this this morning in case it helps you to have an outline to hang your thoughts on. But let's begin with exposition this morning. And we'll pick up in verse 17. And it's at this part uh, during exposition, especially I encourage you to have your copy of the scriptures open so that you can see with your own eyes what God is saying to his people. But let's pick up in verse 17 of John 3. John tells us, and there's debate whether this is Jesus continuing to speak here or John uh, the apostle speaking, and really that doesn't make much of a difference. Either way, it is God's word to us. And it says in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn or judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Okay, now let's begin by talking about what this text doesn't mean. There are many people today who spin verse 17 here much the same way that they would spin, for instance, Matthew chapter 6, Judge not lest you be judged. And it's kind of the, the idea that we can just cherry pick verses out, out of the Bible and turn Jesus into this non-judgmental person who just accepts you and I just the way we are, right? And so, for instance, you're talking with someone, you're evangelizing, and you're talking to them about sin and about judgment and righteousness, and they're very quick to teach you, don't you know that Jesus came into this world not to judge the world? And their implication by that is you should act more like Jesus. Um, as though Jesus is just this sort of you-do-you sort of person without any opinion about right or wrong or truth or error. Let me just say this, if that's you. That is not a responsible way to approach the Bible. And, and you really have to deny a lot of what the Bible actually says if you're going to believe that that is who Jesus is. Jesus came into this world making plenty of judgments. 
In fact, he is the one who made the judgment that unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And so that's not, first of all, that's what this text doesn't mean. What does verse 17 mean? Verse 17 comes to us in a context in which John has been highlighting the love of God to this world. That's why we began in verse 16. And that love that God the Father showed this world by sending his Son is not a love that just accepts the world just the way they are, but rather it is a divine love that redeems and transforms sinners. It is the love of divine grace coming into this world in the person of Christ, which brings sinners out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's Son. What John is emphasizing here in verse 17 is that it could have been very different from that if God had so decreed. You think about it. Jesus didn't have to come into this world the first time to save sinners. Jesus could have rightly and justly come into this world the first and only time bearing the sword of God's judgment in order to condemn all the wicked to what every single one of us deserves. But that's not the reason Christ first came. That will be the reason of his second coming into this world, to judge the world, to to, to save his people finally, and to judge his enemies. But the purpose of his first coming was so that the world through him might be saved. It is God giving sinners a most undeserved opportunity to be reconciled to the God that we have estranged ourselves from because of sin. And that's quite amazing, Christian, isn't it? Because you think about it, by all accounts, if you're you're thinking biblically, the very last thing this world deserved was saving from God. If we really knew ourselves, and and if we truly grasped in our heart of heart how horrendous our sin is towards God, it would surprise us that this text doesn't say that Christ came into the world to judge the world. You remember, that's what God did in the flood. Judged the entire world with the exception of Noah and his family. But God, out of his own grace, his own good pleasure, in the fullness of time, when this world's sins were ripe for the judgment of God, instead God sends forth his Son so that sinners might be saved from the eternal wrath of God and ransomed and reconciled back to God. Verse 18, he who believes in him, that is the Son, Christ, he who believes in him is not condemned. Now that word condemned obviously assumes that there is a condemnation coming, doesn't it? Jesus will bring condemnation upon all sinners who do not repent. But sinner, listen to me. The call of the gospel to you, the invitation of the gospel to every sinner and every type of sinner now is this. That Though I be a great sinner, and though I have sinned high-handedly against my God, 
And though I have not one defense to make for myself in order to clear my guilty name, the gospel says to you and to me, yet if I believe in God's Son, and if I receive from Him by faith the fullness of His grace and His righteousness, God the Father will consider for my case, He will consider that justice has been satisfied. And God the Father, as Romans 3 tells us, being both just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus, the Father, because of my faith in Christ, may justly throw out my charges of condemnation and guilt because God's Son came into this world to bear my condemnation and to clear my charges by the sacrifice of himself. Sinner, that is the simple, glorious gospel promise to you this morning. That whoever believes in the Son is not condemned. But that's not all John says. He goes on. He says, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's at this point, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're outside of Christ, you're an unbeliever, I want you to pay attention. According to the word of God, you right now being outside of Christ means that you are condemned already. If you right this moment are outside of Christ, it's not like God is sitting there waiting to see how the rest of your life will play out to make a judgment on your case. There, there is already, for me and for you, enough evidence mounted up against you to convict you and to condemn you. And sinner, listen to this. The only reason that this morning you do not find yourself waking up in hell is because of God's mercy to you. That word already, he is condemned already, speaks of at least three things. I'll, I'll mention three. First of all, that word already speaks of how certain your condemnation is if you remain outside of Christ. If you die in your sins, you are so sure to be condemned for your sins that it's as though that great day of judgment has already come into the present and already happened. But secondly, that word already speaks to your present condemnation. Not only is your condemnation in the future certain if you remain outside of Christ, but you are right now, as Paul tells us, a child of wrath. If you're outside of Christ, God's displeasure is upon you. Outside of Christ, God is not for you. He is against you. But thirdly, it is a condemnation that is even more severe because it is rooted in your rejection of God's Son. John says, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, if you're here this morning outside of Christ, not only do you lie under the judgment of God for all of your past previous sins... 
But your unbelief in God's son is the chief of sins because it is the sin against the remedy that God has given. In other words, your ultimate worst condemnation on judgment day will be that you have refused to believe in the gift of God's son to sinners because that was the gift that would have removed all of your other guilt. But remaining outside of Christ and hostile to Christ means you not only lie under all those other sins, but under the chief sin of rejecting Christ. Verse 19 then gives the reason for this unbelief. Verse 19, John says, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That is, in my opinion, I'm preaching through John's gospel right now. We're in chapter 6. This is, in my opinion, one of the most significant verses in John's entire gospel because it explains to us the natural disposition of man and the reason for his unbelief. First of all, John says this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world. And when he says light here, John means knowledge. Truth has come into the world. God has from heaven never left himself in this world without a witness. Now, that's an important thing for us to realize. Because if light had not been given to this world, and if men and women and children actually just had no knowledge of the truth, And if the work of the law were not written on our hearts by nature, and if God had just left us without any knowledge of him and without any knowledge of our duty toward him, then we wouldn't be accountable. But that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that God has given us light for which we are accountable there's at least two, two ways that God primarily has revealed light to us. First of all, in what we call general revelation, God has revealed something of his character and his nature and his duty to be worshipped to every single human being ever born on this planet. One time, R.C. Sproul is one of my heroes. One time someone asked R.C. Sproul, What happens to the innocent person who dies and who's never heard of Jesus? Okay, some of you have heard this. And Sproul facetiously, of course, responded. And he said, oh, the innocent person? The innocent person goes straight to heaven. Which obviously shocked the person asking the question. And that was the point. Sproul was purposefully answering the question in a way that revealed the bad premise of the question. Because the question, what happens to the innocent person who's never heard of Jesus when they die, that assumes a prior question, doesn't it? Is there any such thing as an innocent person? And the answer to that scripturally is a resounding no. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Paul begins one of his greatest letters For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against 
all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And where did they learn that truth? Paul goes on and he says, because what may be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. And Paul goes on and he says, for ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made so that they are without excuse. That's one way light has come into the world. But there's an even greater way, and I think this is what John primarily has in view here, even greater and for, to which we will be even more accountable than general revelation is God's special revelation particularly the incarnation of Christ. God coming in the flesh. Chapter 1, John told us that Christ is the light that enlightens every man. John chapter 1, verse 12, I believe, says that though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So that's what chapter 1 said, and now here in chapter 3, John gives us the reason for why the world that Christ made did not receive him. This is very important for us to understand natural men, the natural man, and we'll open this up in, under our doctrine. Think about it. Why don't men and women and children wake up every morning and when they realize that they have breath in their lungs, and they look out their window at the intricacies of a world they know they did not make, why do they not, all of them, without exception, suddenly just burst forth with praise to the true and the living God? And instead, why do they choose to believe theories like, I came from fish, and, all of, and that came from a big bang, which somehow came from nothing? I, I'm asking that seriously. Because it exposes something about the natural man. Does that sound like someone who is following the evidence without bias? Or might there be a reason that they choose to believe the one rather than the other? Right? Why doesn't every man and woman just fall to their knees in worship when they hear the, the good news of the gospel of God's Son? Why instead, when they hear the call to repent and receive grace from Christ, why instead do they get angry? Why do they call Christians names and say they're hateful and in many places of this world do horrendous things to them? It's because of what John says here. It's not ignorance. It's because they loved darkness rather than light. I'll give you an analogy. Um, some of you have probably read books or you've seen documentaries on criminal cases in which there are just piles and piles and piles of irrefutable testimony that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this person is guilty. They did it without any question. Everyone can see it. 
And yet what's very fascinating, interesting, is that often in those situations, you'll often have close family members. Sometimes it's, it's a spouse who just refuses to believe that it's true. And it doesn't matter how conclusive the evidence is. It doesn't matter how airtight the proof is. They simply will not and cannot accept that that is true. And that the one that they love could do such things. Why? It's not because the evidence doesn't clearly point that way. It's because they don't want it to be true. They would rather believe a lie than submit to the hard truth. My friend, that is why men in his fallen state, fallen man does not come to the light. It's because they don't like the light. They are disposed to love darkness, John says. And Christian, that has massive implications for our evangelism, by the way. This is why evangelism is not merely an issue of argumentation, as though, you know, we, we should just assume that if I just tell the right arguments and give the, the right evidence to someone, certainly they will submit to it and believe. You know why that's not true? Because God has already given them evidence, and they've rejected that. You can argue till you're blue in the face with someone, and you can even prove to the unbeliever that their worldview does not have a leg to stand on, and yet they will still find a reason to reject the truth. That's what sin does. Paul says suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. John says we love darkness. I'll give you another analogy, and I don't mean this to be any more offensive than the type of analogy I'm drawing here. I caught some flack for this when I preached this several months ago. I'm not calling anyone cockroaches, okay? And just, just for clarity. But there is, an, there is an analogy between fallen man and cockroaches, okay? If you've ever walked into a house that was infested with cockroaches, especially if you come in at night, what happens when you flip on the light? Thousands of them scatter, right? They don't see the light and say, there's the light. Thank you very much. That's what we were looking for this whole time. They run from the light to get to darkness. Okay. That is what natural man does to light by nature, apart from the work of the Spirit of God. Is When the light comes into our life, unless the Spirit of God is at work, we don't say, there it is. That's what I've been seeking. We say we need to find a reason for why that's not really light and that's not really true. And we run to darkness. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus earlier in chapter 3, in order to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Apart from the effectual work of the Spirit of God, renewing our mind, renewing our darkened heart, causing us to prefer light to the darkness, we will remain lovers of darkness. John says they love darkness, going on in verse 19 and 20. He says they love darkness and not the light because their deeds are evil. 
For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Notice something very significant. Notice it says here, he who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light. We, when I say we, I mean myself here. We often emphasize the opposite of that. That bad doctrine and bad belief will lead to bad practice and bad living. And that's true. If you believe evil things, it will lead you to doing and living in an evil way. But the opposite is also true, and that's what John is saying. Immoral living will lead to bad belief in order to defend our immoral living. Right? It's a coping mechanism and an act of self-justification that the sinner does. He whose deeds are evil will actively pursue beliefs that affirm his evil lifestyle in order to keep his evil deeds from being exposed. My friend, this is where sin is doubly deceptive. Not only does sin initially deceive us by promising us joy and life and then delivering death, but after it brings death, it convinces us that the best thing for me to do now is to stay where it's nice and dark and ignore the light because we think that's going to solve the problem. Right? As long as we keep the light far away from us, it's not going to expose our darkness here. That's exactly how Adam and Eve, our first parents, responded when they sinned. What's the first thing they wanted to do? Let's hide from God. That'll solve our problem. Let's hide the darkness that we're in. It's the mentality of my house is a mess, and instead of addressing the problem of my house being a mess, I'm, I'm just going to board up the window so that no light can get in, so I can't see the mess. That, that doesn't solve any problem. Let, let me give you a few steps and ways that sinners do this, that they become willfully ignorant of the light. Number one, they do this in several ways. Number one, they come up with ideologies that make their sin seem less irrational and less sinful. Number two, they surround themselves with others who celebrate their sin in order to make them feel like the darkness is actually right. Thirdly, they avoid entertaining any thoughts of the true God. Fourthly, I think this is the last one I have for you, and this is significant for you, Christian, your practical experience. Fourthly, they convince themselves that Christians are hateful and judgmental, and they get angry with Christians and they yell at Christians, and they talk over Christians so they don't have to hear it. Why do they do all that? John says, lest their evil deeds be exposed. That's what, that's what willful ignorance does. It willfully says, I don't want to hear that because that would impose upon my little kingdom of darkness that I want to stay in nice and comfortable and undisturbed. Now, here's the thing. If it, I want to speak to you. If that's you this morning, 
You're an unbeliever. You know that you justify your sin. You try to make it seem more normal than it is. I want to say this to you. You can do that your entire life. And you can live as best as you can. You're not going to get rid of the light completely. But you can try to get by your entire life living in a self-made reality, trying to deny the undeniable. But here's the thing. When you pass into worlds unknown and you see with your own eyes Christ sitting on his glorious throne, there will be no more suppressing the light. And you will see the Lamb of God, Christ, whom you are hearing about this morning, the Christ who offered you pardon, And you will see him in all of his glory as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And your mouth will be stopped. And there will no longer be surrounding you all of your friends who once told you, hey, this is perfectly fine and normal. There will be no more ideologies that you will be able to give as an excuse for why you lived the way you did. And you will see the Christians who loved you enough to tell you the truth and whom you despised surrounding the Lamb. And you will have to admit this is the condemnation that the light came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. That I loved darkness rather than light because my Deeds were evil. And he who is today a lamb to you, who invites you with open arms to come to him for grace, will on that day not be the lamb. He will be the lion who will condemn you justly for your rejection of the gospel. My friend, listen to me. You might be sitting here and you're thinking, you know what? My life of sin is not all that bad. And sin has pleasure in it. Sin still brings me a measure of joy. And you're thinking to yourself, it's not that bad if I die outside of Christ. If hell is just the continuation of what I already have now, then really the gospel is not that urgent. Listen to me. The gospel is incredibly urgent because hell is not just the continuation of the party that you have on earth. In hell, every last bit of sweetness and pleasure of sin is drained from sin. And there is nothing but the bitterness of the weeping and the gnashing of teeth as sinners find themselves forever sentenced under the judgment of God, whose truth and grace they spurned. Last verse, verse 21. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. This is the contrast John gives. This is the description of the believer. Because of the Spirit's regenerating work in the believer's life, 
notice he relates to the light very differently. The unbeliever lives in darkness and he disingenuously pretends the light is not there while the believer comes to the light and lives in the light in order that he may be scrutinized by the light to show that his life is one that has been wrought by God or done in God, depending on your translation. Very, very different approaches to the light. That though the Christian does have remaining pockets of darkness, that his disposition is not to defend the darkness and live in the darkness, but rather to come to the light in order that it may be demonstrated that he has lived a life sincerely out of faith in Christ by the grace of God. We'll open that up in our next section. I just want to briefly comment. Let's, let's turn now to the second half. I've, I've combined doctrine and application for the sake of time here, um, or I'm going to here because I think I've gone longer than I expected in the exposition. So let's change gears now to our doctrine and our application. Having understood something of what God is saying to us and how it instructs our minds, let's now consider what doctrine is deduced, Christian. What do we learn here, for instance, about the nature of man? What do we learn here about our disposition towards sin and the believer's disposition towards righteousness? I want to give you two things to consider this morning, and I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, first doctrine and application is this. We are taught in this text that all men and women and children by nature are born lovers of darkness. Okay? All men and women and children by nature are born lovers of darkness. We need to recover for the sake of the glory of God and for the sake of faithful evangelism and for a host of other reasons, we need to recover the biblical doctrine of man's natural enmity towards God. Okay, Christian, listen to me. Men are not born neutral to God, and they are not born with a Jesus-shaped hole in their heart in which they are just waiting for Christ to come in. Men are... We were, Christian, Romans chapter 3, unrighteous, with no fear of God before our eyes, and none of them seek after God, Paul says. That's what the Bible teaches. I'm assuming I'm in good company here. You hear that from your own pastors. Good. I'm glad that's an amen. But we need to be reminded This is what the Bible teaches clearly. And we could look at hundreds of texts this morning. And yet, Christian, people today, most people today, including professing Christians, act as though this is just not true. Jonathan Edwards, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, total depravity is the one doctrine that is proven universally true in our experience, and yet it is the one that is almost universally denied. One of the reasons gospel preaching in our day is so anemic 
is because our doctrine of man is so anemic. And I'm not talking about your pastors, you know that. But I say this because you, you have family members who are in other churches. Some of them probably aren't even true churches. And, and you need to know what are important things that I can lovingly talk to my family about to point them to why this is not a good place for them. This is a primary thing to, to ask them. Because there are many pastors who preach to sinners and talk to sinners as though they are God's buddies already. And that if God just offers them a good enough cup of coffee and a whatever else, you know, I don't know, the ban, that they'll probably have a change of heart and they'll become a Christian. Whereas Jesus described evangelism and the mission of the church in Matthew 16 as literally storming the gates of hell. Psychology and therapy and self-help have eclipsed God's word and what it says about our real problem. And as a result, Christian, Jesus is preached merely as a therapist and a life coach rather than a powerful savior who alone can save us from our own hatred of God and our own bondage to sin. And Christian, you probably know this. This what I'm talking about has produced, and this is an understatement, this has produced thousands upon thousands of false conversions and the nominalism that plagues the church in our, er in our day and in our area. Because pastors and churches have bought the Pelagian idea that man is born at least neutral, if not basically good, and that becoming a Christian is simply nothing more than walking down an aisle or signing a card rather than the supernatural work of God raising us from the dead spiritually and bringing us from the kingdom of darkness and placing us in the kingdom of his son. I'll give you a case in point. The seeker-sensitive movement. And by the way, that is a movement that never should have gotten off the ground if the people who started it had any inkling of what the Bible says about natural man. Think about it. What exactly are they seeking that we are supposed to be sensitive to? Because Paul in Romans 3 literally says, no one seeks after God. It's true, don't get me wrong, sinners seek after many things, but God is not one of them. Not the true God. And just because a church might be able to win someone with a gimmick or a good cup of coffee or a good band or whatever it might be, that doesn't mean that they have been delivered from the love of sin through the saving gospel. And I know I'm preaching to the choir again, but I'll say it. For a church to change and to alter the focus of the gathering of the church in order to attract people who the Bible tells us don't even want God is insanity. We could go on and on about that. Christian, let, let me encourage you in your task. In this world as an evangelist, 
as one who's been given the task to share Christ with your family, your friends. Christian, listen to me. I want to bring it down practically here. You have never talked to a person who was neutral towards God. Now, I know you've probably talked to someone who thought they were neutral towards God. But not believing in Jesus, according to Jesus, is not neutrality. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. And Christian, you need to be aware of this. Christ has armed you with his gospel not to go into friendly territory, not to go into neutral territory, but to go into hostile territory. Just like he came into a hostile world which crucified him. And Christian, we need to be prepared for that. We need to realize that beforehand and with everything that is within us, use the word of God to try to shine the light upon their evil deeds. Now, listen to me. There are certainly different levels and different ways in which one's love of darkness can manifest itself. So don't hear me saying this morning that everyone is just bad in the same way or to the same degree and that everyone is just as bad as they possibly could be. That's not what I'm saying. There are different types of sinners and different ways, therefore, that a love for darkness manifests itself. And it's important, Christian, that you be able to identify those so that you can faithfully shine the light and minister to them. I'll give you a few just as examples. Number one, the first kind of sinner, is you have those who are high-handed in their rebellion against God. They love their sin. They celebrate their sin publicly. And these are the kinds of people that want to put Christians in jail for what they believe. But secondly, there's a completely different type. You've got others who are outside of Christ, and they reject Christ more on intellectual grounds. Right? They love their intellect. They think that you know, Christianity just doesn't jive with what they think the way God ought to be. And that's why they, they haven't embraced Christ, they say. And then thirdly, you've got an entirely different type, type of sinner uh, category, if you will, You've got those lovely people at a, at a civic, worldly level who bake pies and give them to their neighbors, and they volunteer at the homeless shelter, but they're convinced that I don't need Christ. I can go it alone. Thank you very much. Now, are all three of those types of people the same? No. But what do they all have in common? They are all standing in opposition to God because they reject God's son because they love the darkness. Right? One loves their immorality. Another loves their intellect. Another loves their pride, thinking they're better than other people. They don't need grace. But the common thread is that they do not come to Christ because they love darkness. And here's my point, Christian. We should desire to grow more and more skilled with God's word, to use it like it is as the sword of the spirit in order to shine the light of God's truth upon people in the different ways they need it. Even upon those people that their darkness doesn't really look that dark. Let me take, take the 80-year-old uh, the woman for an example. 
She's been married to her husband faithfully for 60 years. She's worked hard. She's raised children. She's, she's the one who bakes pies and you know, gives them to her neighbors. But she doesn't believe in Christ. If you go to that woman and you say to her, hey, I just want you to know that God, he requires faithfulness. He requires hard work. He requires generosity. That woman's probably not going to have a big problem with what you just said to her. Because in her mind, of course, I agree with those things. But the moment you then go further and you tell her something like, you know, I don't know what you'd call her, grandma, whatever her relation is to you. Grandma, you've done a lot of good things. Your faithfulness to grandpa, your service of your community. Grandma, all those things are commendable, but you need to know that what God tells you. That though those things are commendable in an earthly sense, none of those things will even begin to justify you before God. And that you are a sinner right alongside the adulteress and the fornicator. If you say that to that woman, you're likely to see her love of darkness come out in a different way. Because... What have you done? You've shined the light in the particular way that she need, her darkness needed the light shined. Much like Jesus did with the rich young ruler. Right? Sinners have their unique ways in which they hide in darkness. Christian, here's my encouragement to you. Don't fear the response that will come from you shining the light of biblical truth. That very well may invoke wrath, anger, a distancing in the relationship, I get that. It's not pleasant. It's not desirable. It's not like we pray for that, but it happens. It's a reality. But here's the thing. If we do not expose their evil deeds and their particular way of opposition to the light of God's truth, we are allowing them to go on living undisturbed in their darkness. And Usually, unless God works apart from normal means, a sinner that remains undisturbed in their darkness usually remains in darkness. Christian, I know that that's not pleasant. Those conversations are hard, but it is loving to do so. And you're not in control of how God uses that or what God does with that. You can't give them a new heart, but you can expose them to the light. And we need to remember that, Christian. Um, in our day of pragmatism in the church, in which everyone just, you know, it just seems like if we get the perfect program, we can pump people in and outcome Christians on the other side. We need to remember that sinners need more than what we can do for them. Okay? I know that that's not catchy. That certainly doesn't, you know, sound like the, the greatest church model or strategy. Um, we can tell sinners how to be saved, but we cannot save them. That is God's work. They need a supernatural work of the Spirit to renew their enmity between them and God and to make them willing to submit to truth. And we are not responsible for whether that happens or when that happens. We are responsible to be faithful to them. And Christian, that's why prayer is essential. If we really believe we are speaking to spiritually dead men and women, that should invoke us 
and cause us to realize our desperate need to pray to the God who gives life. We should spend as much time praying for sinners as we do evangelizing sinners. And if anything should convince us to pray, it is this stark description of man's natural enmity against God by nature. That's the first thing. It brings us to our second and final thing. Number two, doctrine and application. Just as unbelievers are marked by their love of darkness, believers are marked by their rejoicing in the light. Verse 21, if you've still got your Bibles open, is very instructive. John in particular, especially in his epistles, but also in his gospel, is eminently practical when it comes to knowing and being assured whether someone knows God or doesn't. And here, in typical, simple terms, he lays out for us that those who do evil live in the darkness and avoid exposure, while those who are sincerely born of God come to the light to be shown for what they truly are. And notice there's a contrast here. If you look at verse 20, there's a contrast with that word exposed, right? The lover of darkness doesn't want his evil deeds exposed. There's a contrast between that and verse 21. The believer, on the other hand, wants his deeds to be clearly seen. In other words, in every true Christian, there is a desire to walk in the light and also to desire the light to shine upon our lives so that we can be shown to be genuine sons of light. Not denying, I know, just as you know, because you know your heart, and I know mine, not denying the Christian still has pockets of remaining corruption and darkness. But there is, in the genuine Christian, a progression of submission to the light, not a progression towards avoiding and ignoring the light. And I think that's very instructive for us, both as we examine our own lives to see whether or not I be in the faith and when we're trying to help others examine where they're at spiritually. For instance, in my relatively short time as a pastor, there have been more times than I can remember where I'm, as a pastor, trying to evaluate where someone is at spiritually, and it's very, very difficult at times. And I'm talking with a person, and I see, as is true with everyone, that there's a mixture of light and darkness. And I'm trying to discern, is this just an immature Christian who is inconsistent but sincere? Or is this a non-Christian kind of doing the Christian thing, but they're still lurking in the darkness? Right? And that doesn't mean that God doesn't know whether they are or not. It just means that I don't know. Because I'm fallible. But it's texts like these that John gives us to know what to look for. And I often find myself being reminded that the proof will be in the pudding. And time will tell. Uh, Christian, it's, it's really hard and probably not advisable to try to make a judgment on the state of someone's soul based on just one single snapshot of their life. Right. I mean, 
think about if you were given one snapshot of David's life right after his adultery and his murder of Uriah. You would probably conclude this guy's unregenerate. And yet, as time goes on, we see David uncomfortable in his sin. And we see slowly but surely his humility and his submission to the light. To the point where it's from David that we actually have some of the greatest, most searching prayers asking God to search us with light. Psalm 139, for example. I won't, I won't read it. My time's running short. I need to finish here for us. But that's what it looks like to be a child of light. It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean sinlessness. Okay? Even the people of God are capable of great falls. But it does mean that they're not at home in the darkness. And that God will bring them progressively more and more into the light. Christian, I, I just want to say this. I'm going to summarize and then close for us. This should give us both charity in our judgment about other people and clarity in regards to what to what to look for, okay? It should give us charity in this sense that just because a, sin, a Christian struggles with sin, we should not immediately conclude they're a lover of darkness, they don't know God. It should cause us to be charitable. And at the same time, it gives us clarity that there is definitive things that will be true of every Christian to a certain degree that they will have a progression towards the light that they will more and more flee sin. They will resist its dominion and they will seek to walk in sincerity. Let me close by just a brief word to the unbeliever and the believer. First of all, unbeliever, you who are here and you're outside of Christ, I want to plead with you this morning. You've heard of the gospel of the grace of God that the Father has sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that if you would believe in Him, you can be saved. And my unbelieving friend, I want to plead with you, you too can leave the darkness of sin and come and find and receive the grace of Christ. You might be sitting there looking around and you're saying, but He doesn't know that all of these other people they haven't sinned like I've sinned. He's talking to them. They can come because their sins are small, but I can't come because my sins are great. Let me encourage you. Christ knows this very moment, the very depth of your sin, even more deeply than you do. And he still says to you from John chapter 6, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. old sinner who's lived a life of rebellion, young sinner who's lived a briefer life of rebellion, white sinner, black sinner, religious sinner, irreligious sinner, all are welcome to come to the cross of Christ. Your sin is great, and I know that because my sin is great, but his mercy is more. And there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And so come to Christ. Apply to him for mercy. For grace. Believer. 
in response to this text, walk in the light as he is in the light. It's also possible you're here and you're a Christian, but you've been playing fast and loose with God. And you've been playing hide and seek with God with your sin. And perhaps no one in this room knows about it except you and God. I want to encourage you, Christian, backslidden Christian. Christ did not, receive to, did not reject you the first time you came to him, did he? When you came black as sin, not hiding any of it, not making justification, Christian, neither will he reject you now. Even though you've sinned against divine grace and love, Christ's disposition towards all of his people is come to me. Find pardon, fresh pardon and mercy for your sins. Christian, honor the gospel, not by fleeing from Christ, but by embracing Christ as the Savior that he is, the one whose grace knows no bottom and no end, and trust him and obey him and walk in the light. Let's pray together and close. Father, we pray that you would write your word upon our hearts. We pray simply this afternoon that you would be gracious to us. Be gracious to your people. Strengthen us in the truth of your word. Strengthen us in our desire to obey you and to please you out of thankfulness that you have brought us from darkness to light and death to life. And Father, we pray for those outside of Christ. Be gracious to them. Convict their consciences. Frighten them with the terrors of judgment that is coming. And then lead them to the cross of Christ that relieves our fears. Draw near to us even as we come to the Lord's table. Strengthen our faith, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.